Hebrews 10 is where we'll be this morning. And we've been going along in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, the preacher, remember this is written by a pastor to a congregation. A congregation that was in some sort of trouble because many of them were falling away, not coming to church anymore. Some of them going back to their old religion. And he's writing to this congregation seeking to convince them to hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's important for us to read this as a letter that is written to a church, read it as God's word for us even today. Now, chapter 10, verses 1 through 18 is a long passage. So you're going to, to stay with me as we read it. And we'll come back and uh, go through it. If you found it, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's word. Hebrews chapter 10, let's start in verse 1 and read down to verse 18. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin right there, verse 1. <clears throat> For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bearing witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts, write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you will speak to us through your word. I pray that the same Holy Spirit that gave us this word, the word of God, would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe. For every sinner that's lost, I pray that you would call them home today. For every brother and sister in Christ that is struggling and hurting God, we ask you that you will minister to their hearts, that you'll use this passage as a healing agent, even now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
You may be seated. <clears throat> Life is hard, money is tight, and relationships are complicated. Real happiness, for a lot of people, real happiness is hard to find. Real happiness seems elusive, it seems spotty, sort of sketchy. In almost any given situation, you, you don't really know the right thing to say anymore. As a Christian, you don't want to be offensive when you present the truth. On one hand, you, you don't want to be offensive because you're representing Christ. On the other hand, you, you don't want to compromise on what the Bible says. Being a Christian, 2022 can be a complicated thing. That's why for me, the book of Hebrews has ministered to my soul over the last six months as we have gone through it. Because the writer here, remember he's a pastor writing to his people, the writer here keeps taking his people, his congregation, back to the deep things of Christ. What it means to be bathed and saturated in the profound love and grace of God found at the cross. Now, brothers and sisters, as, as this world gets meaner and darker and stranger, we don't need less theology in the church. We need more. We don't need to hear the things we ought to do. We need to know deeper the things we must believe. We need more of the riches of God's grace found in Jesus. How does it, how does, how does that keep you safe? How does that make you strong? How does that, how does that help us cope? How does theology or Christology, the study of Jesus, how does that fill me with joy? Now this passage is long and if you, if you drift off, it, it, you lose your place. It feels complicated. This passage is packed with Old Testament, Old Testament imagery. So we need to walk through it slowly, but not too slowly, so that we don't miss the point. What is the punch? What is he trying to say about the joy of being in Christ? To do that, what I want to do is, is use several questions to sort of unlock the treasures here. Help us unlock some of the great treasure found here. My hope today is that you will, I hope you will take joyful security in the richness of being a Christian. I want you to take joyful security, knowing Christ and the richness of being a Christian. Now, let's get at this passage. Let's do so with a couple of questions. Here's the first question I'll put before you in verse 1. What is real? What is real? Sitting with the pastors and the interns this morning, about 7 o'clock, so we pray together before church, and one of the young ladies came in. She's drinking something. I asked her what it was. It's seltzer water. That is not a real drink. <laughs> what is real? Standing at the uh, Statue of Liberty in New York, been there a couple of times, New York City, and an enterprising young man comes up to me. He's selling a Rolex watch. I asked him, what do you want it for? He said, I'll take $25 for this watch. That sounded like a very good business decision. I paid him his $25 and put on my Rolex watch. Two weeks, it ran great, ran into something, uh, just bumped into the wall one day, and literally the watch disintegrated on my wrist. <laughs> Fake. What is real? 
Read it slowly here in verse 1 and, and see, see what he's saying now. See the word shadow? For since the law, the law, the Old Testament has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it, the law, Old Testament, it can never by the same sacrifices continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. What is real? See that word shadow? Sun beats down at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in my front yard. You can stand out there under the shadow of an oak tree. That oak tree casts a shade, a shadow. I can stand at that shadow, but that shadow, all it does is remind me of the reality of the tree. You see, the entire Old Testament, here's what he's saying, it's revolutionary. The entire Old Testament points to another genuine reality the good things to come. Do you see that in verse 1? So then the next question is, what are the good things to come? So you start flipping through the pages of the Bible, and you'll get to the book of Colossians. It's a letter from Paul to the church at Colossae, and he says the exact same thing, except that he gives us the definition for the good things to come. Let me read to you what he says. <clears throat> Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, a questioning of food and drink with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. That's all Old Testament stuff. These are a shadow, same, same, same terminology, of the things to come. Then he defined what the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. All the religion in the world can't get you close to God. But our temptation is not of the religion, so... Push that aside. All the leisure in the world can't ease your soul. In the text there, at the end of verse 1, let me read it. He, he just keeps, you see the repetitive nature of the old religion? It can never, by the same sacrifices, continually offered every year. It can never make perfect those who draw near. If you keep doing the same things, thinking that somehow you're going to find some sort of soul-cleansing joy in what you're doing, then you actually miss the entire point of the whole Bible that all of the Old Testament sacrificial system, every religious ritual is there to point us to Christ. When I say point us to Christ, I mean His perfect life in the place of us sinners, Him dying on the cross to take our punishment, God raising Him from the dead. To save you from your sin. What is real? The preacher says Christ is real. Okay, that's one question. Here's another question. If Christ is real, what works? Verse 1, at the end of verse 1. What is actually working? We need to be careful as Christians that we don't fall over into pragmatism doing what we think works. And falling away from the truth of the Scripture, we have to come here and ask the Bible, what actually works? What is, what is working in your life to satisfy your soul right now? The very end of verse 1, the preacher says that all religion doesn't work. Going back to Judaism, you see it at the end of verse 1, continually offering the sacrifices over and over every year. It can't make perfect those who draw near. Now, most of us here are not, 
We are not tempted with falling back into something called Judaism. That is not our temptation. We are tempted, though, to find other things to help our souls, to find other ways to satisfy our souls. Some of us do it by exercise. Maybe that's sort of where you find your satisfaction, or, or maybe you're just the other side. Some of us slouch down in a recliner or a couch and turn on Netflix and let it run until it says, are you still watching? And you hit the button, yes, still watching. <laughs> some of it is, uh, some of us are, would be partying or drinking, drinking beer, video games, illicit sex, TikTok, hobbies. I mean, pick something, just fill in the blank. Or you might even pick a number of really good things to spend our time doing to try to stay ahead of what we know the real problem is. One of my favorite characters from history, American history, is Theodore Roosevelt. I think he was a great president and a great man, but he lived with tragedy. As a young man, he married a beautiful woman named Alice, and she became pregnant, and uh, when the baby came, the baby was healthy, but something turned south. He wasn't there for the birth, and he got on a train to get there. His mom was there in the house helping his wife uh, as she gave birth to the child and was there to help with the baby. And it turns out his mother contracted a fever, and that night his wife contracted a disease. On, on Valentine's Day in his house, his mother and his wife died in one day. It was such a blow to his soul that he didn't think he could take it. He gave his baby daughter, Alice, to his, to his sister and left there and went out west, and he spent the rest of his life why he was such an active man, vigorous. If I can just stay moving, stay ahead of it. But at some point, that breaks down. It's why you and I, it's why we come to the sufficiency. Do you know the word sufficiency? It's why we trust the sufficiency of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Why? Because it works to forgive you, to heal you. What is the gospel do it, it it strengthens you and changes you to to restore you you understand that salvation now let's let's talk about being a, becoming a christian is an absolute miracle of god that defies explanation what is real christ is real what works the gospel works with those two things those two truths giving us something to stand on i'll ask them about you number three how is your conscience yours? I can see on the outside you look pretty good. You're, you're here at church, everything looks fine. But what's on what's on the inside? Your conscience. You see it in verses two and three. That's where we'll go. Some of you have seen the movie Tombstone. In the movie Tombstone, Wyatt Earp tells a man that he's going to the town Tombstone to make a lot of money. And that man says to him, "Look, I've never seen a rich man that didn't have a guilty conscience." And Wyatt Earp says. I already got a guilty conscience. I might as well have the money. Conscience. Some degree or another, every one of us here has some sort of guilty conscience. How's your conscience? I think that's the problem, you see, that the preacher's pointing out for us. It's the problem that all the Old Testament religion couldn't help you with. See in verses 2 and 3? Let me point it out. <clears throat> Otherwise, would they not have ceased, this is sacrifices, if they work, would they not have ceased to be offering since the worshipers having once been cleansed 
would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. A consciousness. The problem with the old religion is that it doesn't take sin away. The, the, the internal, the, the inside man, the, the, the foulness on the inside, in fact, it's just a reminder. The preacher says, you go back there, it's just a reminder over and over again that God in his mercy is withholding his wrath, although sin has created this punishment of death. God is withholding that, and the sacrifices are there to remind you that God is withholding the wrath. Sacrifices are a reminder that sin is costly and creates death, but it doesn't save you. Please don't get in your mind that in the Old Testament, people are saved by the sacrificial system. In the New Testament, then, Jesus came and they're saved by Christ. In the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was there as a shadow pointing to Christ. And people are saved by looking to what they didn't understand, who is Christ. We are saved by looking back to that same event, what Christ has done. That, that's the problem. It's an inside problem. It's not a religious problem. It's an inside problem. That's his point here. How, then, is your inside? How is, how is your conscience? Do you, do you stand before God as someone who's actually a pretty nice person on your own merits? Or have you, in humility, surrendered to the grace of God found in Jesus? You see, only the transforming power of the gospel can actually get the stains out of your conscience. Now, when I say gospel, I want to be clear what I mean by that. We would explain it like this. The Bible teaches that the God of the Bible is a holy creator who created all of us in his image. That's why you have dignity, the image of God in you. But that image in us, the image of God in us, has been disfigured. It's, it's marred. It's blackened by sin. That sin is such that it has broken fellowship the sin is such that it has made us actual enemies of God, that we actually deserve to be punished and sent to hell. That puts us in a really bad spot. God is not just just, he's also loving. God sends Jesus Christ, who's fully man and fully God. He lived perfectly. That's the earned righteousness. He lived under the law, kept all the law. He did that as a human for us. Then he goes to the cross. It's two things. Lives perfect goes to the cross, and there at the cross, it's why it's central to Christianity, at the cross, Jesus took the wrath of God for every sinner that will be saved. Took the wrath of God so that anybody here that trusts what Christ has done can be saved. Have your conscience. Have your conscience clean. That begs the next question, do you? I mean, think of your own self. Here's the fourth thing. Do you need your sin taken away? I really think this is one of the reasons that people don't come to Christ because they don't actually believe they really are that bad of sinners. That's the text. When you read verse 4, you, uh, you get the feel of that. Verse 4 tells us at the end of it, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, to take away sins. It is impossible to have your sins taken away. The old system doesn't work. Our problem is we need our sins taken 
away. Most of us here would readily say, nobody's perfect. You would happily say, I am not perfect. You might even would say, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners. But sometimes what's lost in that confession is the relativizing of saying that. We end up even not consciously doing it, comparing ourselves to other people, and by comparison, yeah, we're sinners, but we're all sinners. You might even would say to yourself that I'm basically a good person. I, I watched a, a, an interview yesterday of Ellen DeGeneres, who seems to be a, a nice lady. She's not a Christian, and that's one of the statements she said, I am a good person. And if you are basically a good person, then what happens is God becomes sort of a, a cosmic crutch for you when you're down or sad or hurt or tragedy hits. But see, our real problem is embedded there in verse 4. As the preacher says, what the religious system will not do, what the old religion cannot do, it can't take away sin. You understand that the gospel is only good news to you if you actually get a grip on how unholy you really are in your natural state. If you understand the depravity that you actually are a genuine sinner before God, when you get that, if you, if you can get there and you see the depth of your sin, what happens is you can then rejoice in the amazing grace of God. We've been saying that this morning, amazing grace. John Newton wrote that hymn. John Newton, on his deathbed, one of his dying quotes was, he said, although my memory fails me, I remember two things vividly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. When you, when you think, now, when you think on the ocean of grace it took to save you, you don't mind giving a thimble of grace it takes to forgive other people who have offended you. When you think about the ocean of grace it took to save you, you don't mind giving a thimble of grace it takes to save other people and move on. One of, the, one of the traits of a mature and growing Christian is the ability to get beyond being sinned against, get over being wronged, and trusting God and resting in His grace. Which brings us to the next question. And that is, what then is a Christian? We need to get that nailed down. I think you find it in verses um, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. It's a fairly long passage. So you read it, and you'll find there a quote from Psalm 40 that the writer has put on the lips of Jesus. It's Jesus saying this, and the punch of that whole passage from verses 5 to 10 is down there in verse 10. Let me just sort of go through it, read a little bit, and tell you something about it, and let's, let's get to verse 10 and find out what a Christian is. Join me there, verse 5. <clears throat> Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, okay, so now this is Jesus speaking, but it is a quote from Psalm 40. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is Jesus, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, 
as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, here's the preacher now. He's explaining it to his people in verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Here's the explanation. He's doing away with the old or the first order in order to establish the second one. He's doing away with the old covenant in order to establish the second one. Here's the punch of verse 10. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Go through that and list the words. List the words. We have been sanctified. That means we have been made holy, not by our own merits, by what Jesus has done. We have been sanctified. How? By the offering of the body. Here you have Jesus as a man and our substitute dying on the cross, taking the penalty for every sinner that will be saved, sanctified by the body of Jesus Christ. The preacher doesn't use the full name very often. He does it at the end of Hebrews. He does it right here. He tells us the full humanity, Jesus as a person, dies for people. Jesus as God. Jesus Christ. The two natures of Christ. We are sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And here is the finished work of Christ once and for all. So to take all of that, put it together. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone that has made, a Christian is someone that has been made holy by trusting that Jesus died as your substitute for sins and that offering of Jesus is all it ever takes to be saved. Now at the end of the sermon this morning, I'm going to give you an opportunity to give your life to Jesus, to trust God to save you. But let's say you already knew the answer as to what is a Christian. You already had it. You have a firm understanding of what a Christian is. Then I would ask you this question. It's the sixth one. Then why are you confident? What are you, what are you confident about? You'll find it in verse 11 and 12 and 13. I've, I've heard people all my Christian life, I've heard people say, you need to know that you know that you know that you're a Christian. The problem with that statement is it puts a lot of pressure on the person. It's, it's, it's subjective. And your confidence ends up being in something that's written down or you feeling like you're a Christian. You know what let's do? Let's put our confidence somewhere else. Let me show it to you in verses 12 and 13. Let me give you some reasons. I'll give you several of them. Here's the first one. Verse 12 our Christianity is God's initiative. The text says in verse 12 that Christ offered. When Christ had offered, it is God doing that, God sending the rescue, God, our salvation is centered in God and the grace of God and not the, not the power of your faith. It doesn't matter if your faith is strong or weak. That's not what saves you. It is the grace of God that saves us whether your faith is giant or small. You see that it is God's grace, that it is God's initiative. Not only that, I want you to notice 
The scope, the text says in verse 12, that it, he did it once and for all time. Here is the scope and security of salvation that God himself in Jesus has saved once and for all, as far as you can look back and as far as you can look forward, for all time. Not only that, I want you to see the exclusive grace found there in verse 12. It is a single, keep looking at it, a single sacrifice for sins. Here is Jesus, salvation found only in Jesus. One time, Jesus did that for all of those who will ever be saved. Also, you'll notice that after he did that, the work is done, that he sat down, that Jesus is the only high priest that can sit down because his work is done. Jesus himself said it from the cross. It is finished. Not only that, I want you to see that Jesus is Lord. Right there in verse 12, keep looking at it. He sat down at the right hand, the place of honor, right hand of God the Father. And verse 13, look at the promised victory. You see how he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, that this Jesus has died on the cross, ascended into heaven, and there he awaits a promised and sure victory for his people. Now, I don't want you to have confidence in something you have thought, written down, or something you have done. Let your confidence be in the sufficient work of God at the cross of Jesus. If you are confident in the grace of God, then the next two questions are for you. I got two questions. Here's the first one. Verse 14, are you then growing? Are you growing as a Christian? Look at the tenses with me at verse 14. Look at the two tenses of the phrases. There are two phrases. One is in a past tense. One is in a present tense. So, verse 14, by a single offering, by a single offering, what Jesus has done on the cross, what happened? He has perfected for all time. He has. It happened in the past. Salvation is a one-time event. The one-time eternity-changing event of Jesus dying on the cross, God raised him from the dead. Anyone who believes in that one-time event is saved that is our anchor. The work of Jesus on the cross is our anchor. The life, death, resurrection of Christ. Okay, so that's the past tense. What about the present tense? Notice it there in verse 14. <clears throat> verse 14 tells us, By a single offering he has perfected for all time. Who has he perfected? Those who are, look at it, being, who are being sanctified. That word sanctified becoming more and more like Christ. Here, here is, the on, here is the ongoing work of God. Here is God working in your life through every single circumstance that you come, come upon. What is God doing in your life to make you more like Christ? What does God do to make us more like Jesus? What does he use? He uses the Bible. He uses prayer. He uses coming to church and singing songs and brothers and sisters in Christ. He, use, he uses you serving selflessly other people. You know what else God uses? God uses your family, sanctifying. God tests our faith with events in life. You know what God uses? God uses hardship that you've walked through. He uses that. That is God sanctifying you. God uses sickness. Maybe you've had a terminal disease. Maybe you've just had something to remind you of your own frailty. God uses 
God uses tragedy. You wondered where God was. He was there using it in your life. God uses relationships. God uses provision. Sometimes he, he blesses us to the degree that we can sit back and thank. We are reminded to have gratitude, his wonderful provision. Sometimes it's poverty. God uses that to remind us of our dependence on him. God, some, God just, sometimes he uses flat tires and broken microwaves and wore out washing machines to remind us this world is decaying. God uses children. You have children? If you have younger children, you don't know this yet. Those children are going to grow up a little bit and God's going to use them to sanctify you. <laughs> Make you pray a whole lot. God uses marriage to sanctify. God uses singleness to sanctify us. So, so I, I just would ask the question, are you seeing all these things in your life that God is using, every single bit of it, to make you more like Christ? Are you, are you growing, you see? That's the first question. The second question is, what has changed in you? What happened? Something changed? Notice the quote with me in verse 16. <clears throat> excuse me, the, the preacher once again goes to the Old Testament and he uses Jeremiah 31. It's a familiar passage throughout the New Testament. And right there at the end of verse 16, notice the Old Testament description of conversion. Let me show it to you, verse 16. <clears throat> this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. Here comes conversion. This is what conversion is. I will put my laws on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. You see, the beauty of conversion, of becoming a Christian, the beauty is a soul change. What happens there is this altering of who you once were. You are not that person anymore. You are now changed as a child of God. To the, to the very, this is why I believe in the power of the gospel to change people, to the very inner workings of your mind and heart that he can change your desires, can change what you want, can change what you are satisfied with, can give you power over addictions. There's a great book out there, um, a remarkable woman named Rosaria Butterfield wrote a book entitled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It is a great description of the power of the gospel to change heart and mind. I would recommend it to you. What, what then has changed in, in your life? Has God written his law into your heart? I'll close with this one question, verse 17. What does God remember? Verse 17 is a great verse, it really is. It's a, it's a verse that really deserves to be thought deeply about. Let me read it to you. What does God remember? I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. It's not enough to say that God forgets. I don't want to say that God forgets. Forgetting is passive. Forgetting is a human frailty. Forgetting is what we do. Forget our keys and forget our iPhone. One of my defenses as a teenager, when my dad would say something to me, and it was always, I forgot. It's what we do. You grow old and your memory starts to fade, and we forget. That's not what God does. God remembers. Genesis 9 says that God would put the rainbow up, and when he saw the rainbow, he would remember the covenant. Genesis 30 says that 
Rachel was praying, and what does God do? God remembers Rachel. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 103, verse 14, that God knows our frame. He remembers that you are dust. What he will not remember, according to this passage, is our sinfulness. When at the cross, your sin is taken away. I want you to, this morning, I want you to take joyful security in the richness of being a Christian. The joy of having your conscience cleansed, your soul refreshed, your confidence boosted, you living in the grace of our good God. This morning as we close, I want to invite you just to pray with me for a moment. The heads bowed this morning when we pray just for a moment as we do. We're going to sing one final song. It's our last worship song. But during the song, I just would offer an invitation to any of you here that would like to have someone pray with you. If you need God to save you, and you know it, if you need God to save you in Christ, when we sing this morning, you can come forward. The pastors are down, you're right on the front pew. Or if you don't want to do that, our pastors are out in the lobby after church. This is worth a conversation. If you need God to save you through faith in Jesus, or maybe you just want somebody to pray for you, to pray that you will grow in Christ, or, or maybe just to pray that you would better trust God. Possibly you have something you can't get past. We need to take this to the Lord. Watch Him work. I want you to have that deep joy comes with knowing Christ. Father, thank you for the grace you give us in Jesus, for the joy of worship. I pray that by your spirit, you will call people even today to yourself. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please, and we sing together.